0: We are super excited today to welcome Grégoire Mallard from the Graduate Institute in Geneva to talk with us about a a really wide range of things, I suspect. Um, Grégoire has done amazing work in all kinds of areas, uh, one of which we are trying to focus on today because it connects with a variety of topics that Me Too and I have been thinking about recently. And that subject is the topic of odious debt, and hopefully we can broaden a little bit to talk about some particular examples as we go. But the motivation for us um, wanting to have Grégoire on and being super excited when he said yes was a paper Grégoire had written about debates surrounding the doctrine of state succession in international law and debates surrounding the doctrine of odious debt in the wake of decolonization efforts in the mid-20th century. these debates, so I have to say, Grigoire, I do not, this is no surprise, I don't know as much about odious debt as, as you do, for sure, and I don't know as much about Me Too either, but I'm. I have a fair familiarity with the subject, as anyone who studies sovereign debt does, and most of the history that you recount in the paper was completely unfamiliar to me, or I had at best really kind of peripheral awareness, and so I'm I'm wondering if we can start fairly straightforward and, and with a relatively simple question, which is just, can you give us some introduction and some background to the debates over state succession and odious debt in the middle of the 20th century?
1: Yes, thank you so much, Mark, for, for these very kind words and uh, for you and me too, to for this invitation. Um, yes, the... The the debates uh, uh, I'm mentioning in that paper um, are actually taking place in the 1960s and 1970s, and they relate to the decolonization movement. Uh, So they relate, they are directly the effect of the constitution of the G77, the group of 77 and underlying nations and uh, the creation of uh, the UN uh, and the transformation of the UN General Assembly in the 1960s and 1970s, as many newly independent states are being formed at the time. So, that changes the dynamic and really turns the UN General Assembly into a sort of a parliament of of the world where what is called the the third world at the time, uh, in reference to the third estate. So, it's a political category claiming to represent really the peoples of the world. And they try to uh, gain not only their political independence, which they a lot of them have done in the 19 in the early 1960s but they try now to gain their economic rights and that leads the united general assembly to create uh, uh, actually a committee uh, that then uh, works on uh, a charter on the economic rights and that is basically captured by the slogan. All this political activity uh, is captured by the, the slogan: the new international order that they want to bring about in the 1970s. And so that's the really a, a moment where there are a lot of political initiatives. Many of them uh, led by different uh, newly independent nations. One is Algeria. Uh, some of these conferences that are major conferences in 73 take place in, in Algeria. And, uh, and, and really, Algeria tries to become the sort of uh, vanguard of this G77. Uh, Abdelaziz Bouteflika is the uh, Secretary General of the General Assembly when these declarations for economic rights and the new international economic order are pronounced. And these political declarations have, in a sense, uh, a legal component in the sense that the General Assembly asks the International uh, Law Commission, which is basically a body of jurists who, who are asked to, to give the, the legal opinion on certain subjects of law. To uh, give their opinion on matters of state succession in matters concerning treaties, that leads to a famous Vienna Convention, and uh, in matters other than treaties, in particular, what to do with state properties, archives, and debts, and that leads to a second best known. Vienna Convention that is uh, written and signed by certain of this G77 states, but never enters into force, in. and it's signed in 1983, and that's why, in a sense, why a lot of people don't really know about that legal uh, doctrine development is because the convention never entered into force. So, in a sense, uh, this is you know a, a 20-year period that that. That is often uh, called a failure—a uh, failure that can be explained by the rise of neoliberalism and many other factors, uh, but that doesn't change the, the customary law in a sense, uh, as far as uh, these uh, questions of debt are concerned.
0: And and so one of the things that was, I think, most um, sort of interesting to me was the amount of debate surrounding the relatively standard definition of odious debt. And and I think um, for most people, that definition derives from Alexander Sachs' work Mm -hmm. and the kind of classic definition of odious debt as, you know, you, you have a despotic leader who borrows money for their own purposes or to oppress the population and the lenders are kind of in on it and um you know that those characteristics are what makes debt odious and the the sort of debate is over whether to expand that definition and I, one of the things that um sort of uh, matters to that debate is the treatment of debt imposed by german controlled territories um, after world war 1 and the treaty of versailles and and mm-hmm. as i understand it from your paper the SAC. Sort of basically ignored that um, that evidence of state practice with regard to, to state succession. Can you kind of give us a little bit of that background too, and maybe um, mm-hmm. help us understand why SAC was so willing to dismiss the way the the debts of German-controlled territories was treated?
1: Yeah, uh, my pleasure. The in in a sense, that paper is a, is a, that you're mentioning is a net growth of, of, of a book I, I published uh, now almost two years ago called Gift Exchange: The Transnational History of a Political ID. And in that paper, I focus much more on the on the working of this international commission. So to answer this second question, I, I'm gonna make more reference to the to the book Gift Exchange because. The book looks at these debates over almost uh, a century. And, and Sack was not writing in at the time of decolonization. He was writing at the time of colonial expansion, of uh, the French and the British empires after Germany lost the First World War, and the German colonies were redistributed uh, to the two mandate powers, France and the UK, who acted in some of these territories, for instance, in what was the French called at the time, the Levant, uh, as mandate powers. Okay, So the, the, the intellectual context is completely different. And, and Sack was, uh, as Mito has written about, uh, Sack a, a fantastic uh, article which uh, I advise everybody to read. Sack was, you know, not a famous intellectual at the time. He was a Russian immigrant arrived in Paris in a context where these debates about state succession uh, were framed in the context of. Um, uh, a sort of uh, very uh, uh, strong support for an enlightened form of colonialism. Enlightened form of colonialism, meaning that uh, this was a colonialism that was supposed to be reformist, that was supposed to be progressive, that was supposed to bring colonies to uh, their independence at some point and uh, where basically some form of uh, uh, international order uh, could steer these the, the behavior of mandate powers so that they really take care of the rights of the colonial subjects okay so the, the that was an idea a, a context that was completely different from the time uh, of when Bejawi was writing so, Also, something that was very important at the time uh, when Sack was writing is that he entered into a community of scholars that were uh, believing in the sanctity of contracts and who saw debt uh, contracts as, in a sense, private law contracts, and so uh, other authors uh, like Marcel Mauss, who, who is a, a key figure in the in the book uh, Gift Exchange that I study, really were shocked at the time by the Bolshevik uh, unilateral denunciation of the death of the Tsar, and so as a Russian émigré, uh, Sack had this image in mind uh, that basically uh, uh, the the Bolshevik had, by having a unilateral uh, uh, denunciation of certain debt contracts that were completely uh, uh, broad and without any criteria, uh he, he thought it was basically an affront against the sanctity of contract and against the international order that was supposed to hold this new league of Nations, this new international society of uh of empires and nations together so what he tried to do without any mandate by the League of Nations, as opposed to Bejawi, who was named to the ILC with a mandate, he, was, uh, he worked to sort of rationalize, to identify the folk theory that he thought could moralize the way states could uh, renounce some part of the debt. Uh, rather than just say, okay, we, we overthrew a despot and now we don't recognize uh, any debt. He thought it had to be, even the behavior of the Bolsheviks had to be moralized. So you had to find universal criteria. Uh, and so uh, this insistence on finding a moral criteria and to, to, to create uh, a moral society of nation was totally different from the time of bejawi that was marked by uh, the need to find a political criteria. So the, the idea of odious debt is the idea that you can find some immoral debt and some that you can renounce and some moral debt that you have to accept. Great. So the so, yeah, sorry,
2: sorry. Um, this is this is fascinating and. I am wondering a little bit about your thought process in looking back at these different definitions of odious debt that come from SAC and Bajawi, but also in terms of what you thought of when you saw that in this modern incarnation of odious death that we saw in the wake of Saddam Hussein being removed in 2003, we have this modern incarnation that occurs primarily from the United States. And I I think primarily from people who are progressive. They they want to help countries that have helped remove bad Mm -hmm. guys. And the definition that everybody goes to is that from SAC and, and not the one from Bijawi, even though, uh, as you beautifully described, uh, Bajawi is much more legitimate in terms of uh, his place in the international order and much more, uh, to my mind, much more intellectually honest in some ways. So do do you think about this? And like, I mean, you did mention at the beginning this sort of the neoliberal order, but that was more general. But in the context of Iraq, why pick SAC? Who has the definition that doesn't actually work?
1: So it's an interesting question. I I think in a sense, it relates to, to my answer about the link, with colonialism and the notion that the international society needs uh, to follow uh, moral crusades, because colonialism was also uh, 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 justified based on moral grounds. It was the civilizing mission, it was the uh, white man's burden. So you had all these uh, components, and that among themselves, the civilized nation needed to uh, recognize the obli- some obligations with one another. So if Germany had paid to develop some uh, to develop some uh, African colonies, once the French or the British would carry the burden of uh, the civilizing mission. they would need to compensate Germany for the debt that they had raised uh, by developing certain African colonies. That was the whole Berlin, uh, you know, Congress of Berlin philosophy uh, that these uh, debts, uh, if they were meant to develop certain states, they had to be recognized as opposed to uh, a state that would have predator, a despot that would have a predatory a component. In that case, we could just erase the debt. So in a sense, in, your, in the case of Iraq, we could ask ourselves, was the Iraq war? Part of a revival of a neo-colonial vision of the international order, where states could, uh, state despot could be toppled and the, the the debt of the state erased if it had been going to the benefit of the despot with the knowledge of the private lenders, uh, uh, the private. Yeah, lenders who, who prefer to ignore the despotic uh, uh, actions as long as they made profit. In that case, SAC could be a useful reference that fits quite well with a neo colonial mindset. Bejawi doesn't fit at all with that mindset. is ardently anti colonial, Is ardently fighting against the notion that actually debt that supposedly goes to the benefit of the colonized subjects, if the roads are built, if hospitals are built, uh, which in the the sense of SAC could justify that actually the newly independent state who inherit this infrastructure would also inherit the debt and would have to reimburse the debt in place of the metropolitan state who retrieves, uh, then Bejawi is ardently against that notion that you could distinguish between morally acceptable colonialism and immoral colonialism. For him, colonialism is unacceptable politically, and it's a political denunciation. So if you bring Bejawi To the Iraq debt debate, of course, Bajawi is going to say, you know, the whole fact that it's first going to be the US who's going to decide what part of the debt is okay and what part of the debt is immoral, went to immoral subject is completely uh, wrong from the from the first uh, uh, from the from its premise. So, so that's I think you know if you put the 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 elective affinity, if you focus on the elective affinities between certain doctrine of odious debt versus debt cancellation, because Bejawi doesn't talk about odious debt, it talks about debt cancellation uh, in general, uh, and the colonial or anti-colonial or neo-colonial undertones of certain discourses justifying state interventions abroad, uh, I think you have an answer to your question.
0: Well, we should probably move to our break. Um, and when we come back, Gregoire, I wanted to pick up on one theme from your last comment, um, which has to do with the discussions about the extractive nature of colonialism and what in particular, so there is a moral dimension of the debates as you're talking about, but what fascinated me was the economic dimension Uh, of the debates in the 1960s as well. And in particular debates over whether, independent of the odiousness of the debt, whether it makes sense to think that former colonies can in effect offset any debts that they inherit against the much greater claims they have against the the metropole and against the private corporation. So maybe we can pick up there after taking a really short break. break.
2: us back a little bit and get us some background, because implicit in our conversation is a story about individuals, uh, intellectuals advancing ideas about how to deal with what we have called OGIS debts. And uh, we were going to get into the more expansive notions of OGIS debts soon, especially when we talk about the context of Haiti. But I know, and Mark knows, a lot about Alexander Sack, because for some time he was the hero of the NGO movement in the post-Iraq context. But we know very little about Bejawi, who is the one who advanced a definition of ogis debts that would, should, would, should and could have been much more appealing to the interests of progressive society and the NGOs, uh, at least to my mind. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you, unlike the rest of us, were so much more interested in Bajawi and why you saw something there that was worth exploring. So.
1: Yeah, with pleasure. The I, I think it's uh, as you said. This is uh, part of a of a bio of a biographical uh, intellectual uh, uh, tra- trajectory in a sense. And uh, I became interested in Beljawi because I became interested in learning more about uh, one of his opponents. Whose name is Jacques Sustel, who happened to be uh, someone I uh, was uh, writing. I was reading a lot in when I was doing my writing my first book called Fallout on uh, nuclear diplomacy and uh, and the type of trade relations that were uh, redrawn uh, thanks to nuclear diplomacy in the pre-decolonization and post-decolonization era, including by France. And Jacques Soustelle happened to be the minister after the Gaulle came back uh, to power in 1958, the minister of the Sahara and atomic energy. And he participated to the expansion to the last attempt to actually raise debt uh, to keep Algeria, French, by first being the governor of Algeria in the 50s, and then the minister of the Sahara and the leader of the uh, uh, Gaullist uh, movement to keep Algeria inside uh, France by developing Algeria, and he has done a famous plan called the Constantine plan which was supposed to show the French generosity toward the Algerian colonial subject and I was very interested because uh, in this character Jacques Soustel uh, because uh, I suddenly realized that he was an anthropologist and he was one of the first PhD students of Marcel Mauss on whom also I had a, a deep interest and that led me to write that book gift exchange And on the other side of the debate, I realized there was one uh, leader in the French-Algerian anti-colonial movement who argued with very incisive and and deep intellectual uh, uh, arguments whose name was Mohamed Bejawi, was writing at the time. Sustel was the governor general, and and when Sustel was minister of the Sahara Nuclear Energy, against this logic of generosity, of colonial generosity, against this logic that the colonial state could actually have a, a left hand that was generous when the right hand was actually very punishing. And when I, wrote his, when I read his writings, for instance, uh, on Nigeria and, and law, and then his book on the new international, economy, international economic order in 1977 that he wrote as a report for 77, I was just very impressed by you know, his intellect. Whereas when I wrote, read Alexander Sack, I find, you know, his, his essay interesting, but quite confusing. I mean, the, the level of uh, of uh, brilliance is very different. And so then I wanted to know more about Bejawi, and I actually had a series of very long interviews with him at his own home, where I discovered that it was even more impressive than what I thought, you know, it was not only this brilliant intellectual, as is often portrayed by historians of uh, third world approach to International law, uh, like Sunjaba uh, Bahuja and uh, Matt Craven and many others, who see him as a you know as a global South intellectual law scholar, I realized he was not just a scholar. He was just one of the key statesmen who was responsible for uh, the building of a decolonial state uh, at the time. Uh, Algeria concurs its independence is an expert advising the uh, Algerian delegation in the uh, negotiation with the French state on how to manage the uh, succession. Is then the first minister the second minister of justice of the newly independent Algerian government for seven years in the 60s. So while he's working on building this theory for why a newly independent state can renounce all state debt that is inherited from the metropolis, then he becomes the ambassador of Algeria in Paris and then to the UN in New York. And then he becomes a judge at the International Court of Justice. Uh, for uh, 20 years even the president of the international court of justice who weighs a lot in the advisory opinion on the Ill- illicity of nuclear weapons uh, in the mid 90s so is you know is it's just fascinating to see these historical figures who come from you know the colonial era a small child living in klemsen from a poor family who's going to go to Grenoble to do a PhD in international law, meets the Algerian revolutionaries at the time and, and who basically has a life that espouses uh, all the political fights of decolonization uh, basically so that's why i, I, I became uh, uh, much more fascinated by Mohamed ben than by uh, alexander sac who was sort of a you know tragic a uh, life as a Russian expatriate that never found a, an, an intellectual position in academia, uh, who moves from certain contexts, whose writing I, I find, you know, interesting but not as captivating, and and whose actually politics are much more conservative than those of Bajawi. And,
0: and in fact, uh, it, it seems that Bajawi was so um, incisive and persuasive that. In many situations, the former colonial powers, while they were sort of adamantly opposed to the rules of international law he was trying to promote, weren't weren't able to object to bring themselves to object on the the substance. And I guess that that's the was the interesting thing for me about the um, discussion of whether former colonies could in effect offset uh, claims against the metropole. So um, in your paper, you you talk about, of course, the, the the former colonizers unwillingness to agree that there might be offsetting claims of that nature. But the objections are, are technical. They're, they're on administrability grounds. It's like, well, it would be too hard to figure out what we owe you. Um, rather than denying the principle. And I'm wondering if there's um sort of a broader story there about the, the reasons why Bajawi's um, ideas never took hold. Like there's a really simplistic way of explaining it that just says the rich Western countries have no interest in these rules of law. But I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about the the basis for um, sort of the British and French objections to that offset idea, in particular, just as a, as a way of yeah. kind of illuminating. Yeah, no, it, it, it's actually
1: quite striking when I when when you read all the. The minutes, uh, which are accessible on the UN website, uh, they are hard to find, but uh, as always with the UN documents, uh, but you can access most of the ILC debates, uh, uh, especially of that commission, where Benjamin was the special rapporteur. Yeah, I I sort of agree that on questions of substance uh, uh, in committee work, you could see that. Bejawi was a sort of an, an unbeatable, and you could see a form of hypocrisy, you know, uh, in a sense, from, from, the, from the Western delegates, uh, which is not uncommon in international affairs. Uh, for instance, one of the, the key concepts that, that Bejawi tried to, uh, to promote on the international sphere as part of the NIEO agenda was the concept of global settlement was to say, okay, you, we can all agree that basically these debt renegotiations are political. And uh, we can all agree that for political reasons, not moral reasons, we newly independent state could agree to reimburse part of the debt. It has nothing to do with moral reason and it has nothing to do with uh, so-called moral obligation for states to recognize the obligations, the contractual obligations of predecessor states. We don't recognize this as a moral obligation. Uh, we are newly independent states, so we are new sovereigns, so we embody a new will. So there's a principle of discontinuity when we're talking about one specific context, which is the decolonization era, uh, which is basically the move from empires to newly independent states. For other cases, as Me Too mentioned, Iraq, it's different, okay? because it's not a transition from empire to newly independent state. But here we can agree that it's a political negotiations, and then what are the grounds of that political negotiation? You say we owe some debt because uh, you build the uh, roads and the uh, hospitals mostly for your settler population, not for actually the benefits of the colonial subjects and for the benefits of the the, the trade exporters in, in your country that needed to actually uh, get the goods uh, fastly uh, out of the colonies. okay uh, let's see how much of the uh, uh, money you are likely to disburse to reimburse, uh, for instance, the natives who you expropriated in the first place without paying them anything when you conquered the country. So let's take uh, you know a broad durée view of the political negotiation about debt. and let's quantify it. Do you want to enter a negotiation? We'll bring our accounts. You bring your accounts, and we can negotiate. And of course, you know, on the one side, you, you have the West who says, you know, oh, we can quantify on our side, but it's very hard to quantify on your side because it's much more in the past, you know. And in, I completely agree with you, Mark, that there's a sense of hypocrisy. You know, we can always bring historians to the table, and the reparations commissions are, are actually doing this. To sort of uh, uh, quantify the amount of, of debt that is due for wrongs committed uh, by a state in the recent past or in, in, the, in the more distant past. So it, there's nothing technically uh, uh, impossible, but the technicalities are used as a political way to dismiss the proposal to engage in a real political negotiation.
2: So, Greg, we're, um, I since we're we're getting close to the end of our podcast, and I don't want to lose the opportunity to ask you a, at least a couple of questions about the topic that our students are most interested in this term. I'm going to uh, take this chance to turn us towards Haiti and the question that you were just discussing with Mark about the obligations in the context of a new state, the obligations that the new state owes the colonial masters and that the colonial masters owe the new state. So the question that we're focusing on as we've talked about informally via email and as we've talked about on this podcast, this term in class is, the Haitian independence debt of 1825. And there, at the most simplistic level, Haiti uh, negotiates with France, arguably under threat of uh, French uh, attacking it with the gunboats, that Haiti will pay France 150 million francs in exchange for the freeing of the slaves in the revolution. So to me, this sounds really similar and somewhat much worse than uh, France saying to Algeria uh, 150 years later, you know, you can have independence but you can't have oil. All of that oil that we, our companies took over uh, when we, took you over as colonial subjects, that we're going to keep. You can have independence, but not your resources. Does that sound to you uh, very much like what is hap- what, what is the case with the Haitian independence debt? And uh, I'm wondering how those same Bajawi principles would apply in, in the <laughs> Haitian case.
1: Well, in, uh, there, there is a common topic in, in both cases, which is the, the question of acquired rights by private individuals, individuals being companies or, uh, or people. Uh, and in a sense, that was a question that was uh, raised when the slave owners in Aishi claimed that some property uh, was stolen from them without any indemnization. And that was the case, for instance, of the land in Algeria uh, that was owned by private companies or private individuals, whether there was going to be an indemnity for uh, Algerian and for the Algerian state, because the Algerian state has at the revolutionary time at the heart of its program to nationalize land. So it would have been not like Algerian citizen taking over the land of uh, uh, French settlers uh, uh, who would uh, prefer to move to the French Metropolis after the independence. It was the Algerian state who would uh, uh, take control and ownership of the land uh, and indeed the question of private companies. So. In many ways, uh, uh, the Bejaoui work exclude these cases, because they only talk about the ILC Commission and the 1993 Vienna Convention. Only talk about the transmission of state property, not private property. The transmission of private, of state property and the associated state debt that. Comes with it, and and it was a, a sort of a fallacious and very political decision to exclude that topic from the
2: ILC commission and from the Vienna Convention. Craig, one connection. Yes, controversial in a sense. Let me. I just want to interrupt you because there was yep. a part of your uh, wonderful chapter that uh, really st- uh, uh, stood out to me that I'd I'd like to flag and uh, hopefully will sort of won't disrupt your answer too completely, which is that um, the, the question of who, which sovereign owes the obligations to these property owners. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think you talk in the chapter about, in the Algerian context, there is this debate, although it doesn't really get resolved, about, you know, property is taken because, you know, when you change sovereignty, some people uh, will lose their property rights, especially if the new state has a completely new philosophy, which it does not involve exploiting the natives. And uh, the question is, who, which sovereign has to compensate? And there was this debate about whether uh, Algeria has to, de- uh, to compensate the French owners or uh, uh, France has to compensate. Mm-hmm. And that I mean, it seems like the Haitian discussion is exactly the same, except that the French decide that, oh yeah, they, these uh, rich uh, French uh, plantation owners lose the slaves, and so th- the slaves have to compensate them, uh, even though this is a new country that is mm-hmm. based on the idea that no more slavery. Mm-hmm. So,
1: so in the case, so, so there is the Algerian case, and there's the general question. I think that we could say that at the ILC, the work of that committee, they assumed that there was continuity as far as private contracts were concerned. Okay. Now, of course, there's an ambiguity of for some type of contract, like concessionary contract and oil concessions in particular, whether they are purely Private law contract, or if there are a an hybrid between public and private law, and in that sense, they can be entered into the negotiation, into the, the the work of the ILC, and that we believe it can, but it gets disputed until the very end. So that, but for 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 instance, the private houses, etc. There's a belief that actually it should be still considered. Uh, 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 Private property and then some obligation, some legal obligation should actually be uh, recognized to uh, uh, pay them back if they're owned by a a private family, for instance. Uh, Now, the question with the Haiti, with Algeria, is somehow different because it was part of a political negotiation that took place after the. Uh, Avian agreement were soon found to be uh, uh, completely uh, no longer relevant after the summer of 62 because in the Avian agreement, the Algerian state recognized its duty to protect the acquired rights of the 1 million of uh, French settlers in Algeria uh, who would move away. Uh, and the fact that after the summer, uh, at the beginning of the, the newly independent state, all the French settlers had, went back to, uh, to uh, French metropolis and then didn't sell their homes, and they were nationalized. Okay, And there, the French state agreed that it was its uh, through different laws in the 70s, that it was its duty to give an indemnity, the metropolis would give an indemnity to this uh, uh uh french settlers for the property they had lost back in algeria but that was a political negotiation from which no general principle was uh was uh, found in the ilc uh, commission there was no uh, this case was treated as a case of a political negotiation but not as the basis of a new customary law as far as private property of uh, settlers was concerned. Now, the Haitian case is totally different in a sense because here, we are talking about basically uh, the French monarchy at the time. Uh, it was uh, the restoration, uh, 1825. It's the French king who decides to reinvade a country Uh, 20 years after its independence to basically take a war bounty
2: using a
1: pseudo legal argument about the fact that the French plantation owners had been uh, stolen of their property, which were human beings. Uh, So it's totally, uh, first, unacceptable politically uh, if you look at it with today's eyes. Uh, But it's really not a case of state succession with some continuity between the moment of Colonialization and newly independent state. There's a 20-year period, and so there's a second invasion, actually. So, so it shouldn't, you know, it, there is, uh, there is nothing uh, uh, legally grounded in the the French claim at the time to extract some uh, uh, debt from the Asian government. It's it just like uh, an invasion. And for the price of leaving uh, this country uh, free uh, from uh, direct rule, uh, they extract a debt. But it's part of colonialism. It's, uh, there, there is no uh, legal ground in today's legal theories for such uh, uh, so-called reparation. Uh, and that relates back to the the sort of hypocrisy you know in the in the moralistic discourse of of colonial uh, powers in the nineteenth century and and uh, mid twentieth century.
0: Do you have a, we've taken up so much of your time, Gregoire, but before we let you go, I, if I can just ask uh, one more quick question, which is whether you have a sense of contemporary views about the Haitian independence debt in France today. I mean, you have people like Thomas Piketty writing, you know, broadly in favor of at least recognizing a moral, if not a legal obligation there. Um, But one of the things our students have been struggling with is understanding um, the way in which the debt is viewed today. And I'm wondering if you, you have any thoughts on that.
1: So, so, I'm not a, a specialist at all of the the Haitian uh, debt owed to France. Uh, I, I would say that in in the in the current historiography, I think the. Uh, of course, there, there is uh, high suspicion uh, and actually maybe like a consensus on the fact that, you know, the, the, the French uh, monarchy and, uh, and then the French Second Empire uh, that uh, uh, renegotiated that debt that, that were completely hypocritical when they said that it was to reimburse former slave owners, because I think there's a consensus that this debt actually was used by the french state to actually colonize algeria to raise money to raise armies to find a new colony and and basically the the Asians were paying for the french state to continue its colonial policy so it was really a war bounty that was uh, used as part of a of a colonial policy so there is Completely, I think in the in uh, there, there is certainly uh, a, a strong uh, uh, support for Piketty's moral argument from the side of historians. I'm sure uh, now from the side of the French state to recognize the wrongness of colonialism. This is a whole different debate, and you know there there is some very timid advances, for instance, with the, the new French president who has asked, for instance, to have a, a French historian to write a report on what could be done to promote uh, French and uh, Algerian reconciliation. But the, the in general, the discourse in France focuses on cultural uh, actions, commemoration of the common past, A recognition of the most moral wrongs, Uh, but very rarely does the French uh, uh, state uh, want to move on the terrain of recognizing economic reparations, where the state would have to pay something and would have to recognize a legal obligation to pay something to erase uh, the debt of certain countries who are former colonies. Uh, So the... My 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 fear is that Thomas Piketty's position is not going to be the official position of the French government.
0: (laughs) No surprise, no surprise (laughs) there. I guess, Uh, Gregoire, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. We were really thrilled when you um when you said that you had the time to to do this, and we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much,
2: Mark, and.